Let's pray. Father, we just pray our nation is in turmoil. We're in the midst of real political storm that has come upon us, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that there would be peace, there would be wisdom, Lord, uh, that people would care less about uh, individual parties and more about the nation as a whole. So, Lord, we pray for healing in our land, and Lord, we pray for those that are really now more than ever, more people than ever are fighting COVID, and we pray, Lord, for healing for those that right now are struggling. We pray for the many uh, medical personnel that are working very difficult long hours. They're burned out, they're tired, uh, they're exhausted, and uh, Lord, we just, we just need help. Lord, we, our only hope in this nation is you. Our only hope in our lives is you. Lord, we need you. We ask, Lord, you'd forgive our sins and heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been talking about uh, the last couple of weeks about why is there something instead of nothing. Uh, we've called this series Why. We're talking about some of the things that we, we struggle with in life. Uh, First of all, why is there something instead of nothing? We talked about a couple of weeks ago. God created the world to display his glory uh, and his grace in creating an eternal heavenly family. The reason there's something instead of nothing because God wanted to create an eternal heavenly family, and he did that. Uh, what is God's purpose for your life? Well, God's purpose for your life is that he wants you to experience and know him through the finished work of Christ on the cross. He wants you to experience the grace of God, and he wants you to be in his family. God eternally worked. God's eternal purpose was to create a heavenly family, and he wants, his purpose for you is that he wants you in that family. And, uh, and he wants you to display his image. He created us as image bearers, and all of that involves in looking like him. So today we're talking about what, what's God's plan so, you know, a lot of times, so we're kind of getting down to the smaller, in the coming weeks, we'll talk about how to know God's will. So how do you determine God's specific plan and some things? We're going to touch on that a little bit today. I want to talk a little bit about today's plan or God's plan for your life. When I was a kid, you may remember this, there was a billboard and bumper sticker campaign and there was a little booklet that came out called The Four Spiritual Laws by Campus Crusades for Christ. And the number, one, the number one law in that book, and it was, this was often a bumper sticker, uh, is that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. So that's the number one law in God's spiritual law is that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And we've seen that. That's really true. That's uh, really what God is, God is working on. God's eternal plan is that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and so we, we see that. And in relationship to that, I think we, we tie that into, in our culture, we tie that into being happy. If you survey people and ask them if they would rather achieve great things or be happy, 81% say they'd rather be happy. 
so in our culture, more and more aspects of your life are judged in terms of their contribution to this phantom of eternal happiness. Does your marriage make you happy? Does your spouse make you happy? Does your partner make you happy? Uh, does your job make you happy? Does where you, is your house, does your house make you happy? I mean, you know, there's a lot of options with house. You can, you can be in a rental place. You can be in an apartment. You can be in a rental house. You can be in a house. You can be a, in a house that you can't afford. Uh, you can be a, in a house that's in a bad neighborhood. Uh, there's a lot of spectrums of how a house can affect you. So does your, where you live make you happy? How about your body? Does your body make you happy? A lot of people right now, right now, this season of the year, this is the time of year to, uh, to, to, uh, to get unfat. Uh, are you okay? (laughs) Almost killed her with just talking about fatness. Uh, You know, I mean, but this is, is this, this is kind of like the season of, this is the fix it season of the year. So we've, people have made resolutions. I'm going to fix my finances. I'm going to fix my body. I'm going to fix everything. And the, the end goal of that is what? To be happy. So if you're not happy in all these areas, if does, you know, and I forgot, does your church make you happy? I mean, everything has to make you happy. And if it doesn't, are you doing something wrong? Because isn't that the goal to be happy? What if it's not? What if the, what if the goal is something greater? What, what if being happy is too small of a purpose for your life? Too small of a goal. Because actually, pursuing happiness, you, secular people will tell you this, pursuing happiness is a dead end. Because it's a moving target. The problem with reaching or attaining happiness, you, get, you can get to a specific place and, and not, once you've achieved that and you thought it would bring you happiness, you realize that, oh, it's just a place. It didn't really change anything. Uh, it's a moving target. If you instead aim for God's purposes in your life, if you aim for God, which is a higher, a higher goal than just happy, what you end up is finding not happiness, but joy. See, happiness depends on happenings. But joy is different because joy depends upon the character and nature of God and how your response to him and knowing that he loves you and understanding the height, the depth, the length and the breadth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So you have a greater understanding of that. And then through that comes a, a joy, which is in actuality supersedes happiness. How do we deal with this? So there once was a man in the Bible that he starts off, his name is Saul, and later we know him as Paul. And he ends up writing about two-thirds of the New Testament. So he becomes pretty important. So we're introduced this to the story of Saul, and he's moving up the ladder of success. And he's becoming well-known in his field. 
And we first meet him at the stoning of the first Christian martyr, the first person who is after Jesus, who dies for their faith, is Stephen. So, and we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to read all of the Stephen sermon that caused him to get. This is not the, really the result you want at the end of a sermon. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it happens. Uh, and so we're going to take this up in the middle of Stephen's sermon. He's speaking before the high priest. This is a couple of years after the resurrection. Uh, and so he's in the middle of the sermon. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? In other words, you know, where could God fit into a house? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And this is where the sermon turns up. A little more caustic. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting, heart and ears, and always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. This is not the sermon on how to win friends and influence people. He, he's called them stiff-necked, uncircumcised of heart, betrayers and murderers. You, you who received the law as ordained as by angels and yet did not keep it. Now he's, talk, he's before the high priest, right? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. We don't use that term really anymore. They were cut to the heart. They were... They were convicted, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, which I can only think that that means to go like, oh, you know, you've probably felt that way, maybe as you looked at the TV this week, I don't know, uh, <laughs> and I've lost my place, uh, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus stand, standing at the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears with one impulse. That's mature. You know, they basically went, ah, we, we don't want, we're not going to hear this. We're not, we're not going to hear this. And they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is, this is the mark you'll find that this was the mark of Christians that died for their faith. That they were forgiving and blessing their persecutors even as they killed them. Not seeking revenge. This was, this was, this was so... Rome was an honor culture. 
So in honor cultures, if someone did something to your family, what did you have to do? You had to get them back to preserve the honor of your family. It was your, it was your family duty. And so now this new family, this family of God, they're living under a new, <laughs> a new duty. And that duty is to, is to demonstrate the love of Christ, to do what their Savior did, to forgive even as he was dying on the cross. So they're following the Lord and forgiving. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he put them in prison. So this just ignites uh, Saul, who will become Paul, just ignites him, and he, he begins to, to go and pursue people who are followers of Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, he kind of explains this a little bit. He says, for you have Uh, He's looking back and talking about his former life. He says, for you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. So Saul was using this opportunity is a springboard for him to move forward in his career. This was an opportunity for him to persecute Christians and become well-known, to, to work with the high priest, to, to have an opportunity to, to gain some notoriety. So he's saying, it worked. I, I gained more notoriety than, than the people, my contemporaries. Acts chapter 9 Verse 1. So he's following this thread. He is persecuting the church. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, so he's following this thread. He goes to the high priest. He's, he's gotten letters, and then he's on his way to Damascus. And as he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A lot of times people refer to that Saul was knocked off his high horse. There's really no reference to a horse here. He was just knocked down. Uh, He could have been on a horse, but it doesn't, doesn't say that. And he said, who are you, Lord? Which is an interesting question to say, who are you? Who are you, God? <laughs> he's saying, so in a sense, he's saying, who are you, Yahweh? Who are you, Yahweh? Uh, who are you, Lord? So he's, he's basically, he, he almost begins by making a faith statement. And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. 
The men who traveled with him stood speechless, speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So, so Saul is having a vision, and he's seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else is seeing the Lord, but they're all hearing the voice. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, probably the one that Saul was going to go and put in prison. He was known in Damascus as a disciple. And said the Lord, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to, priest to bind all who call on his name. So uh, I... I haven't had a lot of times in my life where I felt like the Lord spoke to me directly. Have you? I mean, other than, you know, the, he's always speaking to us by his word. I, the, but it seemed, it's interesting how often, how often people that the Lord speaks to them, how often they argue with him. <laughs> Haven't you noticed that? I mean, God spoke to Moses, and Moses said, like, uh, I, really, I really can't speak. I'm not the one you need to call. I can't go. And God says, well, who made your mouth? Uh, I made your mouth, so don't, you know, don't worry about it. So he says, well, send my brother Aaron, which is interesting. I've said this before, is that really Moses never lets Aaron talk anyway. He really didn't. He just, he, he thought he needed someone to help him. So Ananias said, listen, uh, Lord, uh, We've heard about this Saul guy, and he's coming here to, you know, persecute us, throw us in prison. So uh, is there somebody else that could go besides me? And, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the Lord says to, him, says to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument, uh, instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So God's plan for Saul was to move him out of his religious zealotry into a personal relationship with the living Christ. In other words, God had a plan for Saul's life to move him from where he was. He was thoroughly uh, immersed in Judaism. He was 
He was very well educated and he was very well prepared in Judaism. And so the Lord had a plan. He shifted that and he's going to take Paul and use those gifts now for the kingdom of God. God had a little different plan for his life. Paul's life, his plan was to be successful. God's plan was for him to be useful. Right? Philippians 3.8, Paul looking back on this experience says this. Paul wrote to the Philippians. More than that, I count all things. He's talking about all these things, all this, all this wisdom and knowledge and experience and growing up, uh, having been taught under Gamaliel and, and having, having risen through the ranks and being able to go to the high priest and get letters and gain some popularity. He said, I count all those things, all these things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, but rubbish, but that I may, so that I may gain Christ. He said, I trade it all for, for this personal relationship with Christ. I trade all the, all the prestige, all the success, the, the accompanying fame and wealth. He said, he said, it's all nothing compared to knowing Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then verse 10, he says this so well, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So God had a plan for Paul to move him from religion to relationship. God has the same plan for you. He wants to move you and change your life so that in just like in Paul's life, that you, that you know Christ in such a way. We sang about it today. We were talking about how God changes us and transforms us. That we come to Christ in such a way that it's not just words said I believe in Jesus, but it is a life transformed. God wants to come into your life and he he just doesn't want, God's plan for you is not to make a better version of you. It's it's not a New Year's resolution. It's It's not an improvement plan. God's plan for you is to make you into the image of Christ. And that's only gonna happen through transformation right? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. So God's plan for you is to, in the same way that he transformed Paul, he wants to transform you and I so that we understand the deep things of God. What are the deep things of God? Well, the Bible tells us that the deep things of God is the love of God. The height, the depth, the breadth, the length, of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If it surpasses knowledge, it must be pretty deep, right? No one, no one who, no one who knew Paul before this happened and after it happened would have said, "Well, I don't think anything happened to Paul." They would have said, "This guy's been transformed. This guy was trouble. This guy hated everything about." whatever being a Christian meant or following Christ meant. He was doing everything he could, and now he's 
He's proclaiming Christ in the synagogue. This guy's been changed, and that's the reality. Jesus wants to come into our life and realign it to his priorities. What, what changes is that Paul quit living for himself and started living for Jesus. Secondly, we see from this that God had a plan, and God's plan was for Paul to reach people, an unreached people group, with the good news of Jesus Christ. He said to Ananias, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. That doesn't seem like a very good altar call, right? You know, come to Jesus and suffer. We kind of we leave that part out, don't we? That, that's, part, that's part of the call. Come to Jesus and suffer for being called a Christian. He, so he calls Paul and he says, Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Now, Paul being a good Jew wouldn't have had much to do with Gentiles. Because the Gentiles were pagans. They didn't serve one God, they served, served multiple gods. They didn't, and they didn't serve them, they didn't know him, they didn't have a great relationship, but they, they offered sacrifices to them. They, if, you were, if you worked uh, in, in a guild, if you had a job, you were a carpenter in Rome, or you were, you were, in, a, you were in a trade guild. If you made cloth, if you sewed garments... Uh, if you were a blacksmith or a silversmith or a coppersmith, all of those groups of people had what would be guilds or unions, and all of those guilds had a patron god, and it wasn't Jesus. It was, <laughs> it was Apollo, or or it was Zeus, or it was the it was Hermes, or it was, and so part of your relationship in that guild is that you would go to the temple as part of that guild and offer sacrifices. And when you became a Christian, you quit offering. When you became a Christian, said, I can't go to the guild meeting. Why? Because it's in the pagan temple. And I can't sit around and eat with you in the pagan temple and offer sacrifices to this pagan god. It was a totally different world than Judaism. And God says to, God says to Paul, listen, to Saul that has now become Paul. Listen, I want you to go to the Gentiles. I want you to reach this unreached people group. I want you to tell people about Jesus that haven't heard. Because up to this point, the New Testament Christians were mostly Jews that had been it was a Jewish ministry, and Jews were followers of Christ. So God says, but this is not just for Jews. This is for everybody. And so he calls Paul to go to everybody. Here's, that was God's plan for Paul, to take the good news really to everybody. And he, he went all around the known world, around the Mediterranean basis to the Gentile, basin to the Gentiles there. So God's plan for you and me is the same. To take the gospel to people who have not heard the gospel. Or maybe they've heard it, 
the, what we deal with in America is a lot of people have heard about Jesus, but what they've seen of Christianity has been such a poor representation of Christianity that they have rejected it. They've, they've heard about, you know, they've heard this Jesus stuff, but they, they don't really understand what it means. They have a distorted view of it because what they, the people that have talked about Christ and being Christians uh, is, is a mixed lot, right? And there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians that are not. And there's a lot of people who are Christians that do a poor job of being Christians. Is that right? So, so God puts people in our path, in our lives, where we can be like Paul and share the good news with people who have never heard. God has put you where you are on purpose. You think about, you think about where you are, where you live, and where you work. And you probably work with people who aren't Christians. And uh, God has put you there because there is an opportunity. Maybe you're not going to lead them to Christ, but maybe you can just show them what it is to be an authentic Christian. Maybe you can in some way change their distorted view. And maybe then as you do that, maybe God will provide an opportunity for you to share the good news with them. So there's, you're where you are because God wants to use you where you are to reach people for Christ. 1 Peter verse 3. Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He says, Set apart your life for Christ. What that's saying is set apart your life for Christ. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. So set apart your heart, your life for Christ. Always being ready to get, make a defense for everyone who asks you to give a, an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Paul saying one of the main evangelism tools that's going to work in your life, the way you're going to share Christ with people, is that, is that you're going to, if you set apart Christ in your heart, you live for Christ, set apart, that people are going to ask you, hey, what's going on with you? What's up? You said, you know, this is a difficult season. There are a lot of people afraid right now. Have you noticed that? Why aren't you afraid? Aren't you, aren't you afraid of dying? Aren't you afraid of COVID? So it's a time in, in different, as people observe your life, you get an opportunity. He says, no, you don't have to, you don't have to stand on the street corner and yell, you're going to hell, you need Jesus. You can instead live your life, sanctify Christ in your hearts in such a way that people will say to you, what's up? Then you get to give an answer. Then you get to give an answer. You get to give a defense, an apologetic. That's the word, a defense. It's an apologetic to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And that scares us because we think, I don't have all the answers to all the questions that people are going to ask me. There's, you know, there's things, I, there's things I don't know. What do you know? You know what happened to you. 
I love the story in the Bible where there's a blind man, he gets healed, and, and uh, they don't like that he was healed, and so they, they bring his parents in, and they question his parents and say, was this man really blind? They say, yes, he was blind. And so, well, you know the man who healed him, Jesus, was a sinner, you know. And so, finally, they, they say, he, he's an adult, ask him. So they bring the blind man, the man who was blind, they bring him in, they said, he said, you know, what happened? He said, well, I was blind, but now I can see. He said, well, you know the man who, the man who healed you. You know that he's a sinner that healed you. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But this I know. I once was blind, but now I can see. Now, even Paul, who was brilliant and could argue scripturally, powerfully, he often, the most powerful tool he used to share the good news was that he shared his testimony of how he met Jesus on the Damascus Road and how the resurrected Savior called to him and he has been following him with his life. Really, it's hard to argue with, this is what happened to me. You know, I don't have an answer to everything. Was, was Jonah really swallowed by a whale? I think so, but it doesn't matter if I believe that or not. The Bible doesn't say believe on Jonah and you'll be saved. It says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What, there, there's holes, there's things. I, it's like, is the earth 6,000 years old? What about evolution? What about time? What about 14 billion years? What about all that? I don't understand that. That's not our story. The Bible is not a story about everything. The Bible is the revelation of God's relationship to us. It's a story about us. It's like, it's like Tina and I, if I wrote a story, a love story about Tina and our 44 years, then you read that and say, this book doesn't say anything about how the world was created. But no, it's a love story. The Bible is not the book of everything. It's, you know, it doesn't talk about, you know, you know the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs? You know why? That word wasn't even invented until the 1800s. Started digging up these huge giant lizards, terrible lizards. That's what dinosaur means. So we don't have to have the answer for everything. Don't be afraid of being able to say to people, listen, I don't know. I don't understand that. I, I, can't, I can't tell you the answer to everything, but I can tell you this. I once was blind. Now I can see. I was lost. I was, I was lost. I didn't know God. But one day, God, I can tell you this is what happened to me. I grew up in church. I walked to the front of the church, I bet, 50 times. I got saved at every camp, but I still wasn't saved. One day, something happened. I... I clearly had a greater understanding of the gospel than I had ever, ever had. In other words, I had come forward and thought, I need to give my life to Christ because I messed up. And so I would come down and say, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. You know what the problem was? I did it again. So I thought when I did it again, I had to start all over again. Because I thought salvation was dependent upon me. But one day, I understood for the first time, Jesus called to me and he said, you know, it's like he was knocking on the door of my heart. 
And when I went to the front, I understood for the first time, this is not about me doing better and trying harder. This is about what Jesus did on the cross. This is about that now my sins are totally, completely forgiven. And if I fail, I don't start over again. I just get up because he's already paid the price. Now, that's my story. That's my testimony. God changed my life, and he'll do that for us. So let me close with this. God's got a plan for your life, just like he had a plan for Paul. And God's plan is the best plan. And God didn't really give Saul a choice. In a matter of seconds, he went from a committed unbeliever to a committed follower of Christ. So some of us are afraid that if I give my plans to God, God's going to take my dreams and crush them. And then he's going to send me to Africa. And here's the thing. If God wants you to go to Africa, when you go to Africa, it'll be the most, you'll want to go to Africa more than anything you can imagine. But the simple and best dreams, the simple and best lives are lives that are lived as God's plan. Not as rebels, but as sons that simply say, Lord, I want to live my life your way. So, Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to be. Here's where I want to live. This is the job I want to take. This is the direction I want to go. Lord, what's your plan? And simply, it's simply living in such a way where we're submitting on a daily basis our lives and our plan to God. Say, God, if you're, if you're Lord, I'm going to let you be. And I simply want this. I want God's plan for my life. Because God's plan is not the easy way. But it's the best way. Amen? All right, that's it. Let's stand. That's the plan. Lord, as we journey through life, sometimes we're struggling. We, we get caught up in, in what we want and not what you want. And we, we miss the plan. We miss, we miss your ideal for us. And Lord, we, we, want, we want to be in your will. We want to be in your purpose. We want to be in your plan. You, you've got a plan for us. Lord, just help us as we're in this journey, in, in this journey to learn to listen and lay our plans at your feet. And just say, Lord, I want to go the direction you, you want me to go, whether it's the easy way or the hard way. I want your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.